Time to Travel with Karen Key. And a very good evening to you and welcome to this week's edition of Time to Travel. On the show this evening, I'll be chatting with travel journalist Graham Howe about his recent trip to Poland to celebrate the 70th anniversary of the Warsaw Uprising. Kerry Harvey, another travel journalist, spent some time exploring the West Coast and she'll be giving us some tips for discovering some fabulous out-of-the-way places. We'll also be crossing to the Bafana Bafana versus Nigeria AFCON qualifier game at the Cape Town Stadium with Mo Ali. Well, that's the lineup for this evening. I do hope you'll stay with me and enjoy the show here on SAFM. Time to travel with Karen Key. And it is time now for us to cross to Mo Ali, who's at the Cape Town Stadium for the Bafana Bafana versus Nigeria AFCON qualifier. Mo, good evening. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much indeed, Karen. Uh, very chilly and windy Cape Town Stadium, I might add, but uh, packed. The uh, first two tiers certainly packed and a very enthusiastic crowd in as well as we're just about to get the uh, second half underway and uh, Sheikh Mashaba, the uh, Bafana Bafana coach, uh, making the uh, first change at uh, halftime, uh, bringing on Tokelo Rantier and uh, he comes on uh, for Bongani Ndulula. Halftime, it uh, was goalless. Bafana Bafana starting brightly against uh, a star-studded Nigeria side who started with uh, no fewer than eight players who played at the recent World Cup in uh, Brazil. But uh, the young Bafana side giving a very good account of themselves in the opening uh, half an hour or so until the Nigerians started to exert themselves. And uh, remember, Nigeria coming into this game having lost their opening qualifier on Saturday. Big surprise, losing at home uh, to uh, Congo by uh, three goals to two. And incidentally, Congo winning their second game this afternoon, beating uh, Sudan by uh, two goals to nil. So this is very much a must-win game uh, for the Nigerians. But uh, Bafana Bafana did start very brightly. They had an opportunity in the uh, sixth minute uh, when Opa Yissa saw his uh, shot blocked inside the Nigerian penalty area. They have uh, spread the ball around very nicely indeed, but have a little to show for it. So uh, we're now one minute into the second half here at the Cape Town Stadium. It's uh, Bafana Bafana nil, Nigeria nil. Thanks, Mo, and we'll catch up with Mo again a little bit later in the show. Time to travel with Karen Key. Well, the last time we spoke to Graham Howe, he'd been swanning about in Australia, but he's just recently come back from Poland. He was there for the 70th anniversary of the Warsaw Uprising and had the most incredible time. And, and if you listen to the show often enough, you'll know that the one thing that really, really piques my interest in is anything to do with history, the war, anything like that. It's really right up my alley. And uh, Graham spent some time there. Graham, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Karen. It's really good to be back in the studio. And this, this was you went off to Poland really to mark, as I mentioned, the 70th anniversary of the Warsaw Uprising. That was in August 1944. Yes, yes. And it was an unusual travel assignment for me in that sort of certainly sort of, you know, food, wine and culture always play a main role in my my travels. But I was very excited because I do have a passion, like many people, for the uh, the history of the uh, of, of Europe in the 20th century. I was invited, actually, to cover it by the Embassy of Poland and their Department of uh, Foreign Affairs and was in the company of about 24 other South Africans, most of whom were descendants of South African airmen or, or pilots, navigators, bombardiers, who participated in the Warsaw uh, relief missions of August to September 1944 and were assigned, in fact, by Churchill to, uh, these were squadrons 31 and 34, SAA, AAF uh, squadrons to fly and drop uh, guns, ammunition, uh, grenades, uh, radio equipment to the members of the Polish Home Army who rose up against the Nazis on the 1st of August 1944. So to be there on the 70th an- anniversary of this of this event, of the start of the, the Warsaw Uprising, which saw the complete destruction of the city in a period of months, but the very brave resistance and the role that really these uh, South African, they call them the men who went to Warsaw, and that's the title of a book that's been written about the uh, South African uh, relief effort. And they're really celebrated in, in, in Poland as, as having you know, supported the Polish cause. And they took a tremendous toll as well. I think some 40 South African airmen died on what were often called suicide missions, flying um, long-range bombers called Liberators. They were actually B-24s, and they were the only suitable aircraft could fly this 3,000, I think it was a 3,200-kilometer return trip from southern Italy. So it took them almost 12 hours at night 
um, through hostile enemy territory, uh, flying from the south of Italy, from Foggia Air Base, all the way up uh, over occupied territory, and then finally along the Vistula, the main river, and then to descend down into Warsaw, which was a city in flames at that point. And in fact, one of the uh, airmen, and we were very privileged to be with a few surviving uh, pilots in, in their 90s who'd participated in this effort, and he said, you know, he described Warsaw as like a red fireball illuminated in the sky, and they would fly in at 140 feet to what one of the airmen described as literally like a street courier delivery to drop these canisters to the partisans on the ground, the members of AK, as they were known, the, the Polish Home Army. So it was a really fascinating trip, and, and we visited many of the, several of the crash sites along the way, and also the main cemetery where the uh, South African, uh, some some 30 to 40 South African airmen are buried in, in Krakow in the, in the south. It was an amazing time to be there, though, because it was also there a lot of memorial services throughout Europe commemorating the centenary of the First World War that's, as well. That's correct, yes. Certainly, uh, you know, there were thousands of uh, veterans came in from uh, Canada, the U.S., um, South Africa for the actual commemoration on the on the first of August when the uprising started. But this was obviously a, a world in World War Two, as it was the seventieth mm. anniversary. But it was an exciting time um, to be in Europe. You mentioned that there were forty odds. I think forty-five or forty was it. There were 40 men, uh, yes, South African 40, airmen, who, who, who died, think, yes. yeah, who died and, over and there. And many more taken prisoners of war, because um, the casualty rate was apparently high at around about 60% at least. Wow. And even in three days from 13th to the 17th of August, the start of the, the airlift, they lost eight aircraft over that period. That I mean, that's just combined, and, the, and they would have a crew of about seven members on board uh, the, the plane, the gunners and bombardiers and navigators, pilots, co-pilots, and the uprising lasted about two months, really August, September, and, and had, had fizzled out by early October when, when they were rolled back by the Nazis. But the anti-aircraft guns, apparently, and the German night fighters, um, these, these heavy, quite cumbersome uh, Liberator bombers were, were sitting targets in the night sky, and if, especially and they had to keep radio silence for the whole duration of the journey. One of our, the members of our traveling group, uh, Tinas LaRue, has made a fantastic documentary. I think it's called Warriors of the Sky, but it's really about the men who went to Warsaw. And, uh, we can give out the details to, to download off YouTube that short documentary for free. And in fact, he premiered the film that he's made. He's uh, uh, based in, in, in Cape Town in Somerset West at the Warsaw Uprising Museum. On the day of the uprising, and many veterans came to see this film, which recreates the whole experience and interviews many of the surviving pilots, and one of whom, a pilot from Malta, who was flying with the South Africans, one of the surviving airmen, uh, told us at breakfast every morning, he would look around in the canteen at the airbase in Foggia in southern Italy and see all these empty chairs and realize, you know, which of his colleagues had not made the, uh, survived the, 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 the night. Because, in fact, when we went to the main Commonwealth uh, war grave site in, uh, at Radziki, uh, cemetery in, in Krakow in the south of Poland uh, and this was a very early visit we made on arriving in Poland with with the South African Aviation Group. We came across many, you know, each each of the graves told a story and in some there were at least two airmen were buried in the same grave because when, you know, when these planes went down and burst into flames the, the bodies of the airmen were mangled. So but there were sad stories but also stories of heroism because these were pilots you know, as young as sort of 22, 23. I was going to ask you about that. 27 years old. They were, they, they, they were young and really in their prime. And I remember one of the uh, survivors told us a, a story about about this guy and he he wrote a famous poem his name's Eric Impey and he was had uh, matriculated from bishops in Cape Town and was a national athlete holding South African records and I think he was either 24 or 26, when he, he went down and uh, was shot down, rather. And he wrote this amazing prayer for an airman on the night before that, uh, that he went into action and was shot down. And Pam Durant, the wife of one of the descendants, read this fantastic uh, poem at his graveside, which, which goes, My God, this night I have to fly, and ere I leave the ground, I come with reverence to thy throne, where perfect peace is found. And you can just see what a strong bond has been forged between the uh, Poles and South Africans, because when we visited the crash sites where they built shrines after the war to the South African and RAF airmen who died, 
they, they, the, the, everyone turned out, the local dignitaries. I mean, and we'd be, for example, one of the sites we uh, visited near Krakow called Lisa Gora, which means Bald Mountain. So it's in the south of Poland. And the mayor, the, the headmaster, school teachers in a tiny village in the middle of the country in these remote woods turned out to welcome us um, and take us to the shrine. And uh, what was amazing is that a surviving 82-year-old Pole who was a farmer, and he was a farm boy when the plane went down, when one of these liberators went down and crashed into the woods, killing all the crew on board. And he met us and told us as a boy how he was sleeping in a loft in the early hours of the morning. Um, and this plane, I think it was returning from an airdrop, was shot down by a night, German night fighter. And through a translator, he stood at this shrine in the middle of this very peaceful pine forest and described how he, they heard this tremendous bang, ran into the woods, but in fact it was unsafe because the ammunition was popping, bullets were going off, etc. And he brought along a crate of things he'd collected three days later, and he described with great excitement and also how they, you know, none of the airmen had survived, so they were unable to save them, but how the Gestapo had come to look at the wreck of this plane. So it was very moving to hear this story in the forest, and in fact, Carlo Gagliano, the former head of the South African Air Force, was in our touring party and laid a wreath at this particular site. In fact, the group laid wreaths at each of these very um, evocative sites. And there were also um, signs up sort of telling, you know, who, who the crew were and their background, whether they were with the RAF and SAAF, and beautifully tended with flowers laid at the, and, and candles there in the middle of the woods. 70 years later. So there's a great respect and reverence, I think, for um, the role that the uh, South African Air Force um, airmen played, the, the men who went uh, to Warsaw. And of course, afterwards, it was great because we, we sat down in the middle of a sort of orchard and um, drank uh, black currant and apple juice made from their own fruit. And, and the, the woman of the village of Lisa Gora had made freshly baked cheesecake. And uh, it was really a very special occasion. And I should mention some of the other South African members of the Warsaw Flights group who shared family memories with us. Uh, Richard and John Durant, whose father, Brigadier General Jimmy Durant, was in command of the 20F RAF Heavy Bomber Group in 1944, which sent these uh, squadrons up. And he, in fact, met with Churchill when the decision was taken to fly these suicide missions to Warsaw. And Charles Nell and Sandra Trampich were also in our uh, group, and his father, her father, Charlie Nell, flew on missions to Warsaw. And then also Marion Lauren and Stuart Reed, who told me many stories. And their father and grandfather was Captain Jack van Eysen, one of the SAM and shot down over Warsaw, who escaped capture and, and made an incredible journey back to South Africa via Russia, the Middle East, and Warsaw. And so while we were traveling through Poland and also visiting other tourist attractions and other sites in the area, we were able to share in these stories. There was Martin Yuri, whose uncle Selwyn flew missions to Warsaw, and Claudia Lawton, whose father Boyd Varty, you know, his son is of Londolozi fame, also flew to Warsaw. And lastly, David Haggie, whose father Ian Haggie flew wartime missions all over Europe. And to many veterans that I talked to um, from uh, Canada from, uh, and from the Britain in their 90s, who were standing at this wall of remembrance to, to all the, uh, the members of the Home Army who died in the Polish uprising. And in the middle of the, this wall of remembrance at the Museum of the Uprising, is a section of South African names suddenly pop up, and, and it's all the airmen who died supporting this uh, effort. And apparently the Warsaw um, Flights Committee meets every year in early September at the Katane Memorial Johannesburg, so it's coming up soon to hold a memorial service and a roll call for the South African airmen who lost their lives. So they're certainly not forgotten. Did you visit any other crash sites where South Africans were involved? Um, yes, outside of Warsaw, we went to a village called Michelin, again in the woods, and on the other side uh, of the uh, Vistula, where the Soviet troops were waiting, and in fact failed to, to give the, uh, the Home Army any support, and which is historically very controversial. And one of the down South African airmen there was Captain Jack van Eysen, who was the pilot of the plane, and we were with his daughter Marion Reed and her grandchildren. And she recalled how her father hid after the plane came down. Some of the airmen had, had, had bailed out, and then the plane crashed uh, in the woods. In fact, one of them, uh, whose name was Bunny Austin, the wireless operator, 
stumbled into a, a to a convent and was hidden in a convent bed by a terrified young girl who was 12 <laughs> years old. And, uh, of course, you know, the, the, uh, the pain of hiding, you know, sort of the airman was, uh, you know, the, the Nazis took terrible reprisals. Mm. He was fortunate to be hidden by this girl. He actually sort of was hidden in her bed underneath the blankets. Her name was Ursula. And years later, in 1958, he actually went back to rescue her from the Soviet occupation of Poland and took her to Paris and, and wrote a book about about the, uh, the, the whole incident. And then Captain Jack van Eysen, apparently, that all the airmen were issued with a, a silk map so that as they made their way by night, you know, under the cover of darkness to friendly territory, the paper wouldn't rustle. If they had a paper map, you know, it would, it would, it would rustle. Um, so apparently this silk map became a legend in the Reed family. And he was taken to Russia, Captain Jack van Eysen, interrogated for days by the Russians who wanted to know how they managed to lay mines along uh, on the Danube and apparently six months later or so made his way back overland and by planes uh, from Russia to the Middle East and I think Baghdad and then on to Cairo and pitched up at his wife this is the grandmother's doorstep in Johannesburg and you know when people went missing for six months they normally got a telegraph saying mm. loss in action and his wife thought there was a ghost at the door when she opened the door <laughs> six or seven in the morning and there stood this this uh, pilot Jack van Eysen. Funny enough we stayed at the old hotel Franciski in Krakow uh, where the couple met after the war and then escaped to Paris so quite yeah, this a is romantic story Ursula yeah, Ursula yeah. the convent girl yeah I wonder okay. what happened to her you yeah, know, I wonder um, when I was read that I sort of was waiting to get to the point about and then they got married. But no, yes. it didn't happen. <laughs> sort of waiting for the nice romantic ending. Now, were you actually in Warsaw itself for, this, for the commemorations of the 70th anniversary? Yes, yes. The, the city was bursting with veterans, as I said, and many uh, of the surviving Polish defenders. And wherever the Nazis had taken reprisals or shot uh, locals, there were just shrines burning with candles and people laying flowers. I mean, the whole of Warsaw was sort of strewn with, with flowers. And there were made many major military ceremonies. But interestingly enough, the auxiliary Boy Scouts and Girl Guides aged 12 to 15 had played a major role as couriers during the uprising uh, in Warsaw, running messengers, mail and underground newspapers through the sewers of the city. They were called the Zawizwa Brigade and, and their code name was Mafeking because oh, wow. that's when the auxiliary scouts mm. had been launched and played a role during the siege, siege of, of Mafeking. Mafeking so yes. there was another really strange South African connection and, and many of the scouts and girl guards, they, they dressed up so they were sort of in World War II era costume. They used to run the postal service during the uprising from eight post boxes delivering up to 3,000 critical messages a day. And a message could only be 25 words long, which was a bit like an early tweet, yes. maybe the, th the first tweet. And they were all dressed up and running the post. So tourists could give them postcards and the scouts, you know, for the duration of the uprising commemorations were actually running messengers and off on bicycles. Most of the churches were used as hospitals for the wounded. The, uh, the partisans took a terrible toll. I think uh, something like 15,000 or so uh, were killed during the uprising. The Warsaw barely survived. By the end of the war, in fact, I think on Himmler's orders and, and Hitler's orders was to t totally destroy the city and of a city of about 1.2, 1.3 million, only a thousand people were left surviving in the ruins and the rest had either been killed or fled into the countryside or had been deported like the 350,000 Polish Jews who lived in Warsaw. Very few survived the war and, and most were taken to Treblinka and to the uh, to Auschwitz and, and killed in the death camps, the murdered in the death camps. So it's a very sad history as well about the total destruction of a city between the ghetto uprising of April 1943 and the, uh, the, the following that, the Warsaw uprising of 1944, the complete decimation of a city. I was going to ask you about that because that this is the 70th anniversary of the commemoration of the Warsaw Uprising, which was in 1944. Do they celebrate the 1943 ghetto uprising in, in Warsaw? Well, it's quite interesting because only a small section of the Uprising Museum, a tiny section, dealt with the ghetto uprising. The rest was about the Warsaw Uprising. And yet the costs were enormous in both uprisings. And there was certainly some support. Jewish resistance fighters uh, that had survived the ghetto uprising fought alongside the uh, home army. And many Poles um, supported the, the ghetto uprising as well. I assume that they had a, a, a special commemoration last year in 2013 
13 would have been the 70th anniversary of the of the ghetto uprising. But there is a brand new uh, museum which opened earlier this year, an enormous museum, in fact, dedicated to the ghetto uprising in Warsaw. And we went on a separate walking tour of fragments of the ghetto wall which still survive, which were very evocative. And you can see how, you know, entire areas, a massive area of Warsaw, about 30% of the city, in fact, was blocked off. And you can even go to the Mila 18 bunker. I don't know whether you ever read that fantastic mm. book. Leon Uris, Leon was Uris, it? yes. yes. Mm. And, and see where the head command of the, of the Jewish ghetto, in fact, I think committed suicide when they were surrounded by the Nazis and the position was hopeless. And also to vis- visit a place called the Umschlagplatz, where over 448 Jewish family names are inscribed on a memorial wall. And a verse from the book of Job reads in Hebrew, Polish, and Yiddish, O earth, cover not thou my blood, and let my cry have place. But the, the, the terrible thing about that was, I mean, only 20,000 of the 350,000 Polish in Jews who lived in Warsaw yes. survived. Well, Warsaw was the biggest, I think, next to Moscow, with the two biggest centers of Jewish culture. And many of the other cities like Lotz in Poland and Krakow also had huge Jewish populations. And so they, they really bore the brunt of the uh, war. And certainly, I think, over 1.2 million Polish Jews were murdered in the Holocaust, taken to death camps like Auschwitz, Birkenau, Treblinka, uh, Belzac. I think there are a few few others. But now, you, you mentioned going off and, and the, the celebrations. You had the, the, the Girl Guides and the Boy Scouts sort of delivering the post sort of as a commemorative thing. But what else did they do to mark the uprising in Warsaw? Well, at 5 p.m. on the 1st of August, which was a Friday, in fact, while we were there, sirens sounded throughout the city. And it was very moving. The whole city literally froze for a minute's silence. And whatever anyone was doing, um, it just, the city just stopped to recall the, the loss of an entire city. There, w- there was also an amazing sound and light show we went to at the, uh, this major memorial for the, the, for the martyrs and the heroes of the, the Warsaw Uprising, which recounted in both film and with a full orchestra and a choir the sort of resurrection of Warsaw in the 50s and 60s and 70s and the, the rebuilding of the old town and you can watch a 3D movie in fact at the museum um, which is amazing which is a digitally animated fly past and you look at what the city was like in 1945 at the end of the war and, and what it looks like um, today and the way that it arose like a phoenix in fact. So there, there were ceremonies at uh, all over um, uh, Warsaw. I just want to make this quite get this in my head now. You actually said in some notes that you made when you came back that of a city of 1.2 million before the war, only a thousand survived. Yes. I mean that that's just you can't even quite get your head around that. Well, every building was blown up by the Nazis for daring to to rise up against the Germans, and they were obviously concerned that that it would inspire a wave of rebellion, just like the Ghetto Rebellion um, had inspired the Warsaw Uprising. You know, Poland put up tough resistance, and so they destroyed the city. They moved from building to building with flamethrowers to make sure. So there were only these sort of Robinson Crusoes left um, by the end. I think that's what they call them, in fact, surviving in this complete... And, you know, great films have been made about it as well, but it was... was, it was totally destroyed as a, as a city. And the amazing thing is, if you look at the old town today, which is a UNESCO World Heritage Site, the palaces, the churches, everything was completely rebuilt, but totally authentically, right down to the squares. And on one of the squares, there's a picture of Eisenhower and standing, you know, some of his senior men in the square and, and surveying this, this whole city in ruins. And then you look at the square today and how it's been recreated, but so authentically. It's a very tragic story, but it's also a story of heroism and of triumph over adversity, except when it comes to the Jewish population, as from a, from a total population of 1.2 million, there are only a thousand Polish Jews left today. And many of them, were, were which we, we can talk about in another interview, were, were very, very famous, you know, artists mm. and conductors and industrialists. And so it really left a, a great intellectual cultural impoverishment for, for decades with the annihilation of, a, of, a, of an entire community. It's one of the saddest encounters I've had in Europe. 
but this talking about sad i mean it's it's getting sadder again because there's this rise of anti-semitism in europe which is 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 rather alarming it is in fact it made the cover of newsweek recently called exodus and there's a rating of 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 anti-semitism in countries across europe and it, it does make for very sad reading and it just seems like history repeats itself and there's yet another huge exodus from countries like uh, france and greece and hungary three of the worst rated countries for anti-semitism i think some 6000 Jews have left for Israel. Did we not learn the from the last year. time? Now that's one of the very sad things that history seems to repeat itself. On a happier note, <laughs> 67 members of the South African Air Force were awarded the Cross of Warsaw in 1992, which is rather nice. It is, yes. And as I say, there's there's, rec- there's widespread recognition at each of the sites we went to of the role that the South Africans played in helping to restore freedom in Poland. I think it's, it's quite amazing that they still celebrate the South Africans. I mean, it's been a long time. It's 70 years now. Yes. You sort of would have thought, well, it, you know, we'll, we'll celebrate the uprising, but they're not going to keep on with the South Africans. But I suppose it had a huge impact impact on life in Warsaw. Yes, absolutely. In fact, Karen, one thing that the uh, YouTube film um, your your listeners might want to look Mm. up on YouTube, it's simply called The Man Who Went to Warsaw by Tinas LaRue. And there's also a website called SAAF WW2 two is in the number, heritagesite.co.za, where Tinas um, documents the, uh, the man who went to Warsaw as well. And there's, there's lots of background history for anyone who's interested in more detail. And I'm no aviation historian, and I, I hope I've managed to get most of it right and do justice to the uh, families who, whose uh, ancestors uh, sacrificed their lives in the cause of freedom. It's a wonderful story, though. It's a, it's, it it's a story of hope was, and, and community, and it, it's an amazing story, I yes, think, no, with I was, these I Young, felt, young I men. I very privileged to, be, uh, to look be a at, member of the group. I'm not being funny now, but you look at youngsters today, 21, 22, 23 years old. I mean, I don't know whether they would sit for 12 hours in a plane flying in to, literally <laughs> under heavy fire to go and drop things literally and, almost and, in the street in Warsaw. I mean... It's the, the, the things that they did, I think, were absolutely remarkable. And to do it, um, you know, night after night, yes. knowing that you were putting your life on the line in these uh, very vulnerable, lumbering um, uh, aircraft. But a lot of the supp- supplies got through and certainly played a major role in slowing down the Nazi war occupation in, in Poland. Wonderful story. It's sort of in parts uplifting, in parts very sad, and in parts rather worrying. But yes. uh, really great. Uh, Graham, there's lots more. You didn't just go there for that. You went to investigate Poland at the same time. Um, you're going to have to come back, I'm afraid. Oh, thanks, Carl. I'd like to do that because there are lots of more <laughs> stories to tell. I was chatting there with Graham Hahn. He's a freelance writer and he was uh, lucky enough to be spending some time in Poland for the 70th anniversary of the Warsaw Uprising. He was there as, as a guest of the Department of Foreign Affairs and the Embassy of Poland, the Foreign Affairs Department of Poland, by the way, not South Africa. If you'd like to find out more about what we've been talking about, there is a YouTube video called The Men Who Went to Warsaw. It's on YouTube. It's by Tinnis LaRue. It's a local South African. actually lives here in Somerset Westing in the Cape. And also there's a website, SAAF WW2 Heritage Site. Lots more information if you want to find out more about the Warsaw Uprising. So have a look at that. And um, Graham will be back with us again to continue our discussion on his time in Poland. Time to travel with Karen Key. Kerry Harvey's back again. She's been around for a while now. We spoke about Paternoster, where she lives. We spoke about some fabulous tra- travels to the lighthouses around the coast. But th- the West Coast is almost one of those unexplored places. There are so many little towns along the West Coast with so many things to do that I invited Kerry to come back and just to give us a taste. She's obviously not going to be able to tell us everything. Otherwise, we'll be here for hours. But we're just going to get a taste. Kerry, good evening. Welcome back to the show. Thanks, Corin. Right. So this West Coast, it's one of those places that doesn't sound like there's a lot happening there, but there are so many places and there are so many little things that go to make up this enormous hole, if you like, W-H-O-L-E, by the way, a whole thing, up the West Coast. So where should we start? Well, how about starting just outside of Cape Town in Langebaan, which is about an hour and a half's drive. Okay, I think most people would have heard of Langebaan. Okay. Absolutely. It's Well, Langebaan, I think, is best known for its beautiful lagoon, which is always deep turquoise in colour, seems to be regardless of the weather or what's going on around it. And it's a... It's an absolute mecca for kite surfing because it has very, very reliable winds. I would imagine not being a kite surfer, but I imagine these would be onshore winds. And they have kite surfing schools and, 
yeah, it's it's always the, the lagoon is always ablaze with different coloured kites. So that's one of the reasons to visit Langebaan, as well as for the West Coast National Park, which starts on the edge of the town and incorporates lagoon as well. And in the springtime, which I think it's open August and September, is a section of the park where there are just carpets of spring flowers and daisies, and that is absolutely 100% worth a visit. And from Langebaan, where are we going? From Langebaan, you can go inland to Darling. I think everybody knows mm. Darling, courtesy of Peter Duck Ace yes. and Evita Saperon. Well, that is that is certainly worth a visit. He's painted the station building pink. And inside are shows and a restaurant that serves all traditional food like Cook Sisters and Baburti. You wouldn't expect anything less from him. And there's also a museum which he calls a nauseum um, adjacent to Evita Saperon, which has memorabilia from the old South Africa and, and many things that many people recognize and, and have a good chuckle at. So Darling's definitely worth a visit. And not just for Peter Dergace's Perron, actually, but there's lots more going on in Darling. They're beautiful little coffee shops where you can have lunch or breakfast, like the Marmalade Cat, for instance. Um, there are wine farms around Darling, like Kloof and Darling Wines, where you can visit, and, and some, play, some of the estates offer meals and tastings as well. Um, so there's really there's quite a lot to see and do. Have you heard about the Furkama Fierce that they have in Darling? I've heard about it, but never actually attended. No, I've never been to it either, but they're, they're basically, the, the locals open up their homes, and so one production might have room for five people, and one production might have room for ten people. It depends how big the furkama is. And then people go and put their little show on in somebody's furkama in your lounge. And depending on how much seating is available, that's how many people are invited into your lounge that evening to look at this performance. It's typical Peter Dirk Ace because apparently this was something that he started. And it's it's a wonderful way of getting to meet the locals, of being invited into the into their homes for their amazing hospitality. So if ever you're in the area and it's time for Furkama Fierce, I suggest you make a point of going to see this. Sounds awesome. Right, okay, so now we've enjoyed Peter Dirk Ace and Darling. Where to next? Where to next? I think... Probably we spoke about Paternoster, so we'll mm. leave that out and we'll skip over Paternoster a little bit further north to maybe Feldrift. Feldrift's quite interesting. I think also the name's quite interesting because it's it was named after a drift, a literal drift in the felt that crossed uh, across the Berg River. So you needed to go over the drift into Feldrift. And it's now the drift has been replaced by a white bridge. And Feldrift has, it's a, it's a very quirky, almost outback-like town. And that, in fact, is, I think, the thread that goes through the, the West Coast. It's very sort of wild, frontierish and outbackish. Um, but Feldrift has Bokum Lahn, which is a little gravel road that runs alongside the Berg River. And they're the quirkiest little shops interspersed with Bokum factories where they're busy sorting and drying fish. And you can buy, you know, anything from traffic jam, which is little, <laughs> <laughs> little jam made with leftovers from all the other flavors. Oh, I love this. Um, <laughs> to Bokums or, you know, West Coast sushi, which, of course, is, doesn't even resemble the sushi that we know. It, it would be roll mops and salty cracks, more than likely. And Snook Sisters, and you can dine on a little jetty outside Akinjay, which is also in Bokum Lan. Akinjay is, is a quirky shop, but they serve even quirkier meals on a little jetty over the water. You can do birding trips up the Berg River with Dan the Riverman and see, you know, into a bird estuary actually and see amazing bird life. So there's, there's quite a lot to do in Feldrift. It's an awesome day trip. You know, I was talking to Graham Howell recently about his trip to Route 66 in America and also spoke about these little backwater places with these tiny little towns and the most amazing little shops. This almost sounds like something like that. It, yes, you know, in the West Coast, is, it's a it's an unusual place in the sense that nothing has a big billboard up telling mm. you what's going on. You actually have to take time and talk to locals and, you know, to be able to see what's going on in the area and what there's to do. And so time is a time is essential, absolutely essential. Now, Leipzig is around there somewhere as well. 
Liplac almost adjoins Soldrift, and um, also an interesting name, actually, Liplac was where they literally loaded first wheat coming down the Berg River and then fish. So there's always boats coming in and out there, uh, not for wheat anymore, but fishing boats, which are quite beautiful and interesting to see, and the, and the crews are always working on their boats and doing repairs and upgrades. And there's also a maritime, a small maritime museum um, on the harbour at Liaplac as well, which is, is very interesting to pop into and, and see you know, a different way of, of living. And are we heading up then to Strandfontein places like Strandfontein and Durangbai after that? or? Yes, in between there is Irlands Bay and, and Lambert's Bay, um, oh, if, right. you, if, okay. you follow the, if you follow the coastline. And also both really interesting and different to pop into. Irlands Bay is particularly favoured by surfers because it has a left break wave, which I understand is quite unusual. But a beautiful bay as well, and the hotel in Irlands Bay serves the best seafood platters and chips in the world. So that's worth going to Irlands Bay for, believe me. <laughs> Was this because they were Irland sort of prancing around there that's why they called it that or where does that come from i think that comes from the the bushman or sand that used to live in the area and you know the Irland was their sacred animal so Irland oh, okay. did live up and down the coastline but why Irland's by specifically was named after the Irland, that i don't know but right right next door to Irland's by if you were to travel from Irland's by to Lambert's bay you also drive around Falurin Flay. Oh, uh, that's a bird place, bird sanctuary. Mm. Massive birding, Ramsar site and all the rest uh, for water birds. It's a huge, huge wetland and absolutely beautiful. Even if you're not a birder, just pack a picnic and stop off and spend some time there. Um, but that's en route to, to Lambert's Bay. And as you travel to Lambert's Bay, you also see the potato circles. It's all potato farms. This is entering the Sandfelt, which is the main potato growing area. And they they plant potatoes in circles with a with a irrigation pivot. So the the hillsides are all circles as you drive, which is also quite quirky. But um, Lambert's Bay has has really a lot going on, and it's particularly outbackish in feel and I know that word keeps coming up but mm. as you go further up the west coast it becomes more last frontierish and wild westish as well so in Lambert's Bay you'll meet um, ex-diamond divers and you know people that have just wanted to step out of the rat race and do something simple and it's very the town strikes me actually as awfully hospitable wonderful wonderful people and they're living really simple you know, wholesome lives. But um, from Lambert's Bay, you can go out to sea um, on a boat trip to see the endemic heavyside dolphin, which only lives on the West Coast. And it's it's a sort of greyish dolphin which seems to have a, a Nike stripe on its side. Oh, um, it's a very stylish dolphin then. Very stylish dolphin. Yes. <laughs> the only place in the world you can see it, which is something unique to do, mm. off Lambert's Bay. And inland from Lambert's Bay, just slightly inland, is also what they claim to be the world's smallest desert, which is terribly tiny, if I remember correctly, maybe three square kilometers, which is not very big at all. But it has a complete miniature desert environment with all the, with all the animals and reptiles and and all the rest that live in, in deserts. I'm not surprised you found that, Kerry. We, we have spoken to you on the, on the show before and about how much you love deserts. So I'm <laughs> not surprised you found this. Sm- yes. Do you think it's the world's smallest desert, this one? They think it is. They think it is, yes. Well, because it has a desert environment with, mm. with all the snakes and reptiles that deserts have. But very interesting, if you're in the smallest desert, you can actually see the sea in one direction. You can, <laughs> in winter, see mountains covered in snow in another direction and vineyards because Lambert's Bay has wine farms around it as well. That, that um, makes it even more unique then. Yeah, absolutely. And, sure. and just on that subject, if you go further north to Durangbai, that is, as I understand it, the vines grow the closest to the ocean anywhere in the world. They're about 600 meters from the Atlantic is a wine farm. And these are Friars Cove wines. And they have their tasting room actually on the harbour at Durangbai, right on the water's edge. Wow. And you can actually taste the saltiness in the wine. It's, it's delicious and refreshing and very unique. 
So, and I think that's actually a thread up the West Coast as well, is unique. And Strandfontein is around there. We've got a Strandfontein in Cape Town, but this is a whole different one. Yes. Uh, Strandfontein right next door to Durangbai. And in Strandfontein, they're sort of cliffs, rugged cliffs that jut straight into the ocean. So it's a very dramatic and beautiful coastline and awesome for, for photographers as well. Uh, but the Crayfish Trail is in Strandfontein or starts in Strandfontein and can be walked in sections. And I think it's a, it's a very extensive trail that I think goes all the way to Lambert's Bay. But that's all along the coastline as well. So that's it's a beautiful walk with, you know, beautiful scenery all the way. And there's also a labyrinth to walk in Strandfontein, uh, right on a cliff overlooking the ocean. And at the right time of year, winter, through winter, there are whales as well. So you can walk a labyrinth and whale watch at the same time. Wow. Now, the, it sounds to me, these little towns, are these still the little towns that I remember from back in my youth when we used to travel around the country? You would actually see the church steeple before you actually saw the town. Some of them and some of them not. Uh, they have, you know, they've uh, these, t- these towns are, well, they're still relatively small in the scheme of things, but you, there will be a little supermarket and all the rest, so you can, you can get your groceries. But some of them do have the, the church steeple, but uh, not all, not all. That's, it's certainly not the hub of all the West Coast towns, as it is more inland. Kerry, it just sounds like one of those places where you have to go and explore this place, because it sounds almost like if you, you don't go, you're seriously going to be missing out here. Well, you know, I think it's it's just an amazing road trip to do and something mm. completely different. And to take a week or so and just drive ad lib, basically, up the West Coast. There's lovely and quirky accommodation all the way up. There's tourist information offices and hubs as well to help you out with brochures. And there's really just very different, unusual things to do. So personally, I think there should be a Republic of the West Coast. There used to be a Republic of Heart Bay. (laughs) Well, they still like to think there is one there. So they have stickers all over their cars saying Republic of Heart Bay. So you can can, can have some mad Republic of the West Coast. I think so. Mm. I think it's time. And you're all very hospitable and friendly up there. So I'm sure we'll enjoy ourselves if we come and visit. Absolutely, yes. Definitely the place to go. So if you're looking for somewhere to go, and as I always tell you on this show, be a tourist in your own country. You would be absolutely amazed at what there is out there that a lot of us just have never seen because we've just never taken the time or we've been too quick to get onto a plane and fly overseas, which, let me tell you, is fabulous. Don't ever think that that I'm saying it's not great to go and explore the world. But honestly, try and just have a look at your own country. Save you a lot of money. It'll be a lot cheaper. There's no exchange rate in South Africa. And uh, you would be amazed at what you can find. And by all accounts, a trip up the West Coast is definitely something you need to be putting on your bucket list. Kerry, thank you so much for joining us again this evening. And uh, hopefully we'll chat to you again soon. That'll be great. Thank you. I was chatting there with Kerry Harvey. She's a freelance travel journalist and she has her own website, which is amazing. Go and have a look at it. It's www.kerry, that's K-E-R-I, kerry-harvey.com. And before we cross over to Mo Ali for catching up with what's happening at the Cape Town Stadium, I just want to tell you, I received an email today to tell me that Cape Town has been voted Africa's leading destination and Africa's leading cruise port at the World Travel Awards 2014. These awards are held annually to acknowledge, reward and celebrate excellence across all sectors of the global travel and tourism industry. Africa's leading city hotel was the Pepper Club Hotel and Spa. The leading conference hotel was the Radisson Blue Hotel at the Waterfront. The leading hotel brand and in Africa is Hilton Hotels and Resorts. Africa's leading hotel residence is the Cape Royale Luxury Hotel and Spa. The leading luxury villa is Element House Villa One. The leading tourist attraction, of course, is Table Mountain. And 2014 Africa's leading safari company is Rhino Africa Safaris. And Africa's leading travel management company and 2014 Africa's leading online travel portal is Travel with Flair. Now, I'd never heard of Travel with Flair. Now that they've been awarded this amazing um, award, I'm going to go and have a look and hopefully, um, you know, find some more information to be able to share with you. And also in the country category, the 12 Apostles Hotel and Spa was voted South Africa's leading spa resort. And the Cape Royale Luxury Hotel and Spa was top in the Residences Hotel category, as I mentioned earlier. And uh, Gilt Edge Travel was voted SA's leading luxury tour operator. So lots of awards coming to Cape Town. That's absolutely fabulous. But not just for Cape Town, but for South Africa that we keep getting all these amazing, amazing awards. Well, now that I've told you all about that, it's time once again for us to cross to Mo Ali, who's at the Cape Town Stadium for the Bafana Bafana Nigeria AFCON qualifier. Mo, what's happening? Well, 
Well, three minutes to go here, uh, Karen, I can tell you, it's an electric atmosphere. Bafana Bafana have uh, just come close to scoring in the 83rd minute. The one-on-one -on -one situation for Tokele Ronte and uh, the goalkeeper Austin Ejide managing to stick a leg out and uh, preventing the ball from uh, going into his goal. But then there was a little melee in that uh, penalty area which Bafana Bafana didn't profit from and they really should have scored. But I can tell you the crowd right behind this team. Remember Bafana Bafana have never beaten Nigeria in a competitive game. They've met seven times before in uh, competitive games. Nigeria have won six and uh, they played to a goalless draw on one occasion. It would be an historic win for Bafana Bafana if they somehow can pull it off. But Nigeria have also had an opportunity when uh, in the 80th minute it was the substitute Igadaro Osagona saw his header cleared off the line by Eric Matoho. It would have been a grave injustice for Bafana Bafana to concede because they really have dominated the African Championships. African champion rather but uh, they haven't had anything to show for it a great performance this by Bafana Bafana and the spirit certainly is back in this team remember they came or they come off a good 3-0 uh, win in uh, Sudan on uh, Friday evening and really continuing the good work Nigeria coming into this game losing by three goals to two against Congo over the weekend but a good performance they're still uh, just over a minute plus stoppage time remaining for Fana Fana on the attack as they have been over the last uh, 10 minutes or so. But uh, just not a uh, bit of uh, over individual efforts also uh, when uh, teamwork should have been uh, to the fore in the last third of the pitch but good performance by Bafana Bafana this evening with a minute to go plus stoppage time it's Bafana Bafana nil the African champions Nigeria nil Thanks Mo and uh, he'll be all holding thumbs that obviously in that minute plus stoppage time that Bafana Bafana are going to be able to score one just all we need is one goal at this point and we'll beat Nigeria and they've never done it before so hopefully tonight is the night the 8th Annual Hotel Investment Conference Africa takes place at the Maslow Hotel Santon Johannesburg from the 14th to the 16th of September. HECA brings together local and international hoteliers, developers, suppliers to the industry, financiers and investors, and senior public sector leaders. This year's speaker lineup boasts four ministers of tourism from South Africa, Tanzania, Senegal and Zimbabwe. The conference is hosted by the Tourism Business Council of South Africa in partnership with Gauteng Tourism Authority and SAFM. There's an online registration which is now open on www.hica.co.za. That's hica.coza. Join the conversations on HICA 2014 on social media, the HICA group on LinkedIn or follow at HICA07 on Twitter with the hashtag HICA2014. We are ready before you get ready. We endure the traffic, digging or climbing. We go the distance. We therefore find that the Supreme Court of Appeal... From inside the courts to the markets, we bring you the views of the vocal and the voiceless. When I use the minibus taxis, I pay... Come sun or rain, we get you the story wherever it is. SABC News, Africa's news leader. The province of KwaZulu-Natal has adopted a zero-tolerance stance against unethical behavior in the public service sector by launching the I Do Right campaign. The KZN office of the Premier is hosting roadshows to raise awareness and enlist the support of civil society, business and labor in reported suspected fraudulent and corrupt practices. Join us as we say I Do Right even when nobody's watching. KwaZulu-Natal Provincial Government working for growth, development and a better future for all. Time to travel with Karen Key.
Now, well, Chicago, they're taking us back quite a way cool, with You're the Inspiration. Gosh, it really does take me back. Shows my age, I'm afraid, when I play music like that. Um, I wanted to give you some tips when you're traveling. You know, when you're overseas and you're in a foreign city and you've somehow lost your passport and your wallet and all your cards and your cash are gone. I've got lots of nice tips there for you. Don't have too much time right now to give you all of those. If you'd like this list I've got here, you can just drop me a mail to travel at safm.co.za. But the one thing I did want to mention to you, I wasn't sure whether you knew this, but when you do travel overseas, it's always a good idea to register on ROSA. That's R-O-S-A. And that's the registration of South Africans abroad. And that allows the Department of International Relations and Cooperation to assist people in the event of an emergency. So if you're stuck overseas or if people are trying to locate you overseas, at least you will be on a register and they'll be able to know exactly where you are. They'll have contact details. You can register all of this online. And uh, if you want the contact um, website for that, just drop me a mail again, as I said, to travel at safm.co.za. It's R-O-S-A, the registration of South Africans abroad. It's a really good idea to do that if you travel out of the country. And then just telling you a little bit about what's coming up on my shows next week. On Monday on The Law Report, we'll be talking about mediation in family disputes and divorce. I seem to have been receiving quite a number of emails from listeners lately about family disputes and issues with divorce. So I thought we'd get two attorneys into the studio next week. So on Monday evening, we'll be discussing mediation in family disputes and divorce. And of course, the health program on Tuesday, lots of interesting things. And then, of course, Graham Howe, you might have heard earlier, he's going to have to come back again. So he's back again on on Wednesday evening, continuing with his story of his travels in Poland. He always seems to go to such absolutely amazing places and comes back with the most incredible stories. So if you followed him this evening, you'll be able to catch up with him a little bit more on the show next Wednesday. Well, that's it for Time to Travel for this week. Um, when the show's ended, we have to make a mad dash because the soccer's come out now and 35,000 people leaving the Cape Town Stadium and we have to go past that to try and get out of here. So big dash after the show. But anyway, that's in a couple of seconds. And uh, in the meantime, let me tell you, I'm Karen Key and thanks for joining me this evening. And a reminder again, if you need any information about something you've heard on the show this evening, you can find it on Facebook, travel on SAFM or email me on travel at safm.co.za. And I'll be back again on Monday evening with the Law Report. So join me then. Time now for Stephen Kirker and some nighttime music. Hello, Stephen.